gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media, um, and also the interplay of cold and personal forces that formed the universe some billions of years ago. Um, so, uh, you may have heard already that we are going to have the 500th Remnant Palooza and uh, at AEI. Um, seating is very limited. People should not get on planes to come to this thing. I mean, I'm flattered, but just don't. Do that and it'll make me uncomfortable um and there'll be other meetups but uh um we're very excited that the thing is coming together we're going to front load it with uh high-minded statesmanship and, and eggheadery and then move on into rank punditry on the thing and uh part of the uh high-minded eggheadery uh portion of the evening will be provided in part by none other than yuval levin who um Remnant listeners are well aware of and very familiar with these days and are always demanding more cowbell. If by cowbell, you mean we've all lived in. Um, and so I figured we'd have him on today just to sort of wet people's whistle and to talk about the craptacularity of how things are going these days. So you've all welcome back. You were the head of the uh, Center for... S- what are, what are we, I, I, I can never remember how to say it when I need to say it. Social, cultural, political... In constitutional studies, so, social, cultural, and constitutional studies. Yeah, I guess the political is assumed. That's right. That's right. Um, I just always think of it as you're you're getting the band back together, or it's a reboot of the part of AI I started at, which had everyone from Ben Wattenberg to uh, uh, Robert Bork, Robert Goldwyn, Walter Burns, all the. Uh, well, that that's a model. I wish we could really walk in those footsteps, but uh, we're certainly yeah. trying to at least fill some of the gap. You, you you do okay in there, and 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 you know I'm a I'm not a terrible Wattenberg man, K. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, anyway, uh, so why don't we start with something? So as as listeners know, as you know, I dine out on a lot of your insights. I've been working on this sort of institutions as platforms versus institutions as molders of character for a very long time. Uh, um, we've both been prattling on you with substance about the gelding of Congress and it's, it's a choice to be, make itself irrelevant. And then recently you wrote something that I'm not saying you got it from me or anything like that, but it's something I've been ranting about for a very long time about the necessity of people, um, to stay in their lanes. And um, you wrote it for an uh, outlet called Comment. And um, why don't you just sort of walk us through that argument first, and then we'll get into the other stuff. Sure. Well, thank you. And I, I, I'm sure I did get it from you. Um, the, the basis, so Comment is a Canadian magazine that I write for now and then so that I can spell things with a U after the, with, a, <laughs> with an O-U where they don't belong. Um, and the basic argument is about the nature of the kind of culture war debates we have. Um, it starts from the old Michael Jordan line about how Republicans buy sneakers too, uh, where he didn't want to get involved in politics because he was a basketball player. And he didn't think that it was his place to really offer people advice about who to vote for. Um, Jordan got in some trouble for that in, in, in the 90s when he, when he said that. Um, 
And in some ways you can see why, but I think that it's an insight, a wisdom that is worth recovering and thinking through. Because in a lot of ways, what's gone wrong in our political culture and maybe in our broader culture is that everybody treats all the different facets and arenas of the culture as though they were the same and as though they were just all places to stand and yell about the same basic set of issues. Whatever it is we're all supposed to be angry about this week is what's supposed to be happening um, in, in every major corporation and on every college campus and in every newspaper um, and in every part of our society, in every church and synagogue. Everybody is supposed to be taking sides on this one big question, and that's all we do. And of course, there are enormous costs to behaving that way, um, not only that we make ourselves tedious to each other, which is no small thing, but also that a lot of these institutions end up losing th the, the trust of the public to do their core work if they actually, in practice, end up just playing this part and all doing the same kind of political cultural work. And part of what the piece argues is that what happens in all these arenas now is this mix of politics and entertainment that doesn't really belong anywhere. It's not politicization. It's not that we're doing politics in the wrong place. This is even happening in politics in the same way and making politics impossible to the extent that what's supposed to be happening in the political arena or in our constitutional institutions is some form of bargaining and accommodation toward resolving problems. That's not happening either for the same reason that uh, we see trouble in the universities and that we see trouble in American religious life and in corporate America, is that everybody seems to be doing someone else's job, but it isn't really anyone's job to actually behave like this. And ultimately, recognizing that this is part of the nature of the, of the breakdown we're living through can help us see that it, a lot of times people really do need to, as you say, stay in their lanes and think about what's actually my job in this situation I can be an activist another time, another place. That's important. Politics does matter, but politics isn't everything and shouldn't be happening everywhere all the time. Yeah, I mean, the thing I always think about when this concept comes up is I remember, and I don't want to be unfair about it because it's been a long time ago and maybe it's worse than I remember, but in the Obama administration, they, the, they appointed a new head of NASA and he was asked what his priorities should be. And like the top priority was fighting racism. And it's just like, fighting racism is good. I don't want any racism at NASA. But, uh, but like, is it really your top priority? Right. <laughs> you know? Um, and um, I don't want to get you in trouble by making, by doing argumentum ad Hitlerum. But, um, and I try not to write about this too much because it's just, I've learned my lesson about how people take things in unintended directions. But when I was writing liberal fascism, you know, this is this point about all the wars have to pull in the same direction, regardless of the institution. The Nazis had a term for it. It's called the Gleichschaltung. And it was, uh, it's a, it was a term borrowed from electrical engineering that meant essentially coordination. And so you could have independent institutions, nominally independent institutions, fraternities on campuses, that kind of thing. So long as the leadership swore to incorporate the political principles of the regime and act on them in coordination with the other institutions and with, with the state leadership. I don't, I'm not saying that there's anything nearly as nefarious or as deliberate going on in America, 
but this notion that like everybody has to be on the same page for DEI or um, has to basically just spew the exact same talking points everywhere you look, um, it does, you could understand why people of a conspiratorial bent could see a conspiracy there because it's hard to explain as coincidence when in fact it kind of what it is, it's literally coincidence where, um, what, and I don't mean that like two random variables that happen to be superficially aligned. I mean, these are things that are all happening at once coincidentally, um, because people think that's their mission. And I, I don't know. I mean, how do you combat it? How do you tell people this isn't your job, right? This is just, it's just not your job. It doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means that you're, it's sort of a kind of ideological embezzlement to use the resources of an institution for purposes other than those that the institution was created to work towards. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the way to get at it is actually through a kind of diagnostic work that is to help people see that there's a huge cost to this, that it actually makes it very hard for people to trust you in your own sphere when it seems like what you're doing is preaching to them about politics. And so there really is something to this argument that Republicans buy sneakers too, that, that, that what we do here is not that. Um, even though we're all, in, you know, we're all serious citizens engaged in politics, you know, at some level, this is a Wendy's and it's okay. Uh, you know, we can, we can do that another time. And the, the work of the institutions matters a lot so that if it becomes impossible for public health to be taken seriously because it seems to be taking sides in a debate about the issue of the day that isn't about public health, there are real costs to that. I mean, we've seen that. And I, as I get into it in the piece, I mean, there's a way that the public health world in the middle of the pandemic decided that its top priority had to do with police brutality. And look, police brutality is very important, but in the middle of a pandemic, maybe there are actually more important things for public health to be taken seriously about. And when you take sides in issues that aren't your own, it becomes very hard for people to believe that you're not just always taking sides uh, for them or against them. And so they can't trust you. And so much of the challenge we face now in, in so many arenas of our culture has to do with trust, with a sense of, can I rely on this person to do the essential work that they've taken on. And trust is really all about demonstrated restraint. Trust is not just the belief that this person knows more than I do about this subject. Maybe that's true, maybe it isn't. But ultimately, trust is a sense that th this, there are things this person would never do because she's a doctor or he's an accountant and they just don't do that. If we lose that sense, that confidence, then it really does become very, very hard to trust one another in a free society, and everything else becomes more difficult. I mean, our kind of society depends so much on trust, on just the sense that we can leave this to this person, leave this to that person. If we lose that sense, then, it, then it, it, all the gears get stuck, and it becomes very, very hard for our free society to function, and not just in politics, but in every part of its life. So, but I mean, uh, so diagnostically, it, you know, I thought it's a little annoying and I'm as guilty of it as anybody, but there's this widespread sort of meme uh, or theory that everyone falls back on that, that 
progressivism, wokeism, whatever the label you want to put on it, is operating as a kind of political religion, right? And um, I've been making that argument for for years. It's all my immunitized Yeshkaton, Gogelin stuff, and um, and I understand that it's flawed because real religions actually have. You know, they may not all have scripture, but they have doctrine, or for want of a better term. And um, and this stuff doesn't. At the same time, if you're going to look for historical analogies, I mean, and you don't want to go to the German Gleichschaltung, because it, it sounds like you're choking. Um, religions are where you go, you know, Presbyterianism and the UK or whatever, where every institution was supposed to be upholding a certain understanding of what Christian values were sort of married to a certain kind of patriotic nationalist kind of notion. Um, institutions were created from the Salvation Army forward that with those kinds of with that kind of spirit. If, if you don't think of it as a religion, what can you, how do you think about like this amorphous phenomenon that seems to be, sort of coordinating all these institutions. And if you do think of it as religion, you still are left with the problem. Okay. And therefore what, how do you rebut it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's some value in thinking about it as a religion in the sense that it suggests that it doesn't need to be a formal conspiracy, as you say, for it to reach across so many different arenas. But I, I think in a way, what it is that reaches across all these arenas is not just wokeism or progressivism. It's actually the conflict itself. It's the, it's the division of society into two, and therefore the constant need to show that you are on team A or team B. And we do this on the right, too. It's, oh, sure, not, sure, just, sure. it's not just the left. So in other words, it's not just progressivism. And, and it, the, the sense that the that you can't know how to think about a fellow citizen unless you know what team they're on in this contest of two teams is part of what makes it so difficult for the institutions of a free society to function because our kind of society, uh, you know, modern liberal democracy requires some degree of compartmentalization. You have to be able to deal with people who are not part of your inner circle or your community. And the, the, the fact of, of diversity of opinions, the basic underlying fact that, you know, as, as, as Madison says in Federalist 10, as, as long as the, as the reason of man continues to be uh, imperfect, and as long as he's free to exercise it, there will be different opinions. That's just a fact. That's a premise. Um, th that fact means that we've got to be able to do all kinds of things with people who have different views than we do. And we have a lot of institutions that are built to make it possible for us to do that. And one of the ways they do it is by compartmentalizing, by saying here in this hospital, we're not going to divide people based on whether they're on the right or left. We're going to think about them as human beings in need of medical care. Um, it's extremely important to be able to compartmentalize that way. It doesn't mean that that the dispute is not important, but it means that there've got to be parts of our lives where that's not what we're doing. And I think when when the political institutions work in our kind of society, then it is possible to do that. There are there are places where the political energies can be channeled into the parties, into the legislature, 
into various kinds of, of activism and activity that then allow us to not have to deal with them everywhere else. And I think some of the failure of our political institutions has meant that we now deal with those differences absolutely everywhere. And we constantly feel the need to demonstrate what team we're on. And that just makes it very, very difficult to do the things that are not about political divisions or cultural divisions. And we're left with very few things that even meet that description. Everything seems to be about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we talk about this a bunch, including on this podcast, about how, you know, Congress is where politics is supposed to happen. And when Congress isn't handling politics, that doesn't mean that politics don't happen. That means they just don't happen there, right? And that, so it spills out sort of like if you think about it as a as some sort of nuclear power plant or nuclear containment facility um you know if 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 congress isn't the place where people work out political regional geographic all sorts of differences then those differences manifest themselves in other places like the you know the bump in the carpet kind of thing and um i'm very sympathetic to that you know in a way what happens is congress becomes just another one of the places where we express our views rather than becoming the one place where we actually work out accommodations despite those views. And so this is a sense in which I don't think we're quite politicizing these different arenas of life. We've actually, in a funny way, depoliticized the political arena. We actually don't engage in, in a politics of accommodation and bargaining, which is what has to happen at the center of a diverse democracy. And in the absence of that, we end up basically commenting on politics everywhere, including in politics, in Congress. Have you read, I don't mean to blindside you, I mean, but have you read the Fukuyama book on liberalism? Yes. Mm-hmm. What do you think of it? I'm a huge fan of, of Frank Fukuyama. I've, I've known him since I was a, a, a wee staffer in a, on a presidential commission on bioethics that he was a member of, and he was just so impressive and also such a generous person. Um, that I, 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 I love what he does and, and how he thinks. Um, I, I did leave that book still a little unsure of what liberalism is supposed to mean. After all that talk about liberalism, it, it encompasses a huge amount, an awful lot, but it's a great book. I learned a lot from it. Yeah, no, I learned a great deal from it. I, I liked it a lot. I, I wish I hadn't been at death's door when I was talking to him about it. Cause it's just, it's all basically a vision quest. Now I barely remember the conversation, but, um, it got me thinking a lot about liberalism. And this is, this is one of the things we've talked about a bunch. You know, I, you've heard me plug it a million times. There's this wonderful piece that you ran in national affairs. I should tell listeners, you're also the editor and founder of national affairs, which is the sort of heir to the public interest. May she rest in peace. And, um, uh, by Daniel Burns um, called uh, liberal, liberal Practice um, Versus Liberal Theory. And it's one of these things that I, w- I just wish so much I had read before I finished uh, my book, Suicide the West, because it was very useful, just sort of palate cleanser on how to think about these things. And, you know, his point is, is that all these people are obsessing about Locke, the sort of Hazoni kind of, and the integralists and these kinds of people. They miss the fact that, like, no, no liberal societies are, in fact, purely Lockean. They're, they have deep-rooted cultural things that we call liberal, and they are liberal in some respect. But um, um, there are, there's almost no sort of 
ideologically, classically liberal purity to the designs of any of these societies, because these societies organically grow up in sort of Berkey and Hayekian fashion through history and contingency and are influenced by different culture kind of things. Anyway, I'm very sympathetic to it. It was sort of part of the argument that suicide was. And, but I was reading the Fukuyama book and it got me thinking about how to actually, you know, as, as I'm sure I've told you, I originally wanted to call suicide a West, the tribe of Liberty, because it's one to make this argument about how our attachment to Liberty has to be in some sense, tribal and cultural before it is theoretical. The theoretical stuff is a lagging indicator of sort of that rationalizes and contextualizes these, these cultural commitments. And so the Fukuyama book got me thinking a lot about how to defend liberalism without talking about liberalism. And I want to try this out on you as a heuristic, as just sort of a mental exercise of trying to figure out what liberalism is in, in practice. I think if you think of situations where either an immigrant to the United States or an American citizen traveling abroad who runs into unfairness of some kind or oppression of some kind or even bureaucratic bullying of some kind says something along the lines, I thought this was America. And it seems to me that that impulse or you can't do this, I'm an American, right? Um, the things that we say that kind of thing about strike me as the best sort of understanding of liberalism in practice and how sort of people of our ilk um, should be talking about this, not so much purely in theory, but also in terms of ways that connect with people. What do you think about that? I think that's very interesting. It, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, in a way, it gets at the idea that we we actually do have a definition of what it is that makes us distinct, and it comes out in those moments of, of exception. Um, I, I guess I would also say, though, that part of what I was left with after reading the Fukuyama book is that there is a the, the American way of life and politics is not just liberalism. And in a way, we've been in a debate now for a while about what else it is. And I, I think Fukuyama tries to avoid that question by broadening the definition of liberalism. But I, I actually think there's a useful way. I'll tell you how I think about this. I, I think that the that the the answer to how do we describe the American the distinctly American way of of politics is that it is a combination of liberalism and republicanism, and that republicanism is the much harder term to define um, because we've spent a lot of time, hundreds of years, defining liberalism. Um, liberalism is theoretically very well defined. But republicanism as a practical matter is extremely important to what we are as, as Americans. I point you to another national affairs piece that no one has read and everybody should read today. Um, we published it in 2014 by a wonderful young political scientist named Carl Scott. It's called The Five Conceptions of American Liberty. Um, and it's really a constant frustration for me that I can't run into anybody who's ever read that essay. Um, what it argues is that there's been an evolution across American history of the kind of thing we mean by liberal freedom, which began as classical liberalism of individual rights, evolved into basically property rights. Uh, if you think about 19th century America and how people talked about freedom, a lot of it had to do with property rights. It then evolved in a progressive direction um, toward a kind of positive freedom. 
and eventually toward a culturally progressive direction, the kind of uh, Anthony Kennedy uh, individual freedom. And these things are connected. They're on a continuum. And you can tell a story about how Americans have thought about freedom that way. But alongside that, from the very beginning, there was something that, that, that Carl Scott in that piece calls communal freedom, and, and that I would call something more like republicanism, where liberalism is, the, is, the, is, the, is the, is the politics of the freedom of the individual, um, a politics of free people. Republicanism is something like a politics of virtuous communities. It's about virtue, and it is in some basic sense communal. Um, and it has coexisted with classical liberalism in the American tradition from the very beginning, so that republicanism creates the kind of person that is capable of being a free liberal citizen, and liberalism makes it possible for the kind of community that's necessary to make that person, a republican community, to exist. The two need each other, they coexist, they're in tension, and so we always fight about which of them we should emphasize, but you can't really understand the American political tradition without some notion of republicanism. And to me, th this is particularly important now because some of the debates that we are having on the right about the Constitution, about the role of judges, actually has to do with the fact that republicanism is so under-theorized. A lot of people are frustrated with the way in which the originalism of the right is, uh, you know, is too procedural, it has no moral substance, and people try to fill it with substance. Maybe that's Catholic natural law, maybe it's some kind of very radical individual rights talk. I think the substance is republicanism, that originalism isn't just procedural, there is an idea of the human person and the human good at the core of the American Constitution, and that idea is a small r Republican idea, um, and it is not nearly well enough articulated for us to be able to talk about it at the same level as we talk about liberalism, but it's awfully important. And I, I, I was left reading the Fukuyama book thinking there's a real need for that kind of parallel track to be articulated here, because the story that Fukuyama tells is, is true, or I find it very persuasive, but it's not complete, at least as a story about America. Okay, I want to get to that in a second, but I think for the, for the benefit of, well, me, but also the listeners, um, you make a powerful case that, that we don't theorize and, and, and conceptualize republicanism enough, and I'm sympathetic to it, but you actually didn't define it. And the thing is, is that, usually, and I've written about this a bunch, usually when you hear about Republican, you know, you get the sort of Mike Lee, I mean, I don't want to pick on Mike Lee, I'm, I'm fine with picking on Mike Lee, but there are lots of people who do this all the time, I've done it over the years, we're not, this isn't, the, this isn't a democracy, it's a republic, right? And, and it turns out, like, in part, I learned this from Adam White, but like, this is, uh, you know, it's like, saying this isn't a ball it's a sphere right because the original understanding when people talked about republicanism and republics in the 18th and early 19th century um they were talking about democracy they were talking about moving in a representative form of government away from monarchy all that kind of thing and so for practical terms they were interchangeable but it's clear that you're you that's not what you mean by republican so why don't you sort of 
it doesn't have to be the perfect definition, but a working sort of definition or illustration of it. Yeah, I mean, the biggest problem in defining republicanism is that James Madison defines it in Federalist 10 in a way that I don't think is helpful at all. And <laughs> that's the way that Mike Lee defines it. So Madison in Federalist 10 says, by republic, I mean a representative democracy, an, an, an indirect democracy. Um, and that's fine if that's what he means by republic. But that's not what republicanism means. Um, and I, I guess I would say that I that we ought to define republicanism in, in in parallel to liberalism, so that if we think about liberalism as a political philosophy of individual freedom, which is, I think, not a bad way to 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 begin defining liberalism, then we might think about republicanism as a political philosophy of communal virtue. Republicanism, in the classical sense describes a community that is oriented toward the formation of a certain kind of citizen. Um, and the, the challenge for republicanism in the modern era is the challenge of moral diversity. That is, the, the classical polity, the little city in Greece, had a lot of agreement about some very basic things, religious and moral and philosophical. And we live in societies where often there is not that kind of agreement about nearly so many of those kinds of things. And the question is, how can you have republicanism in a liberal society, in a society where individuals have a huge amount of freedom and where there is a lot of that kind of moral diversity? And I think that kind of, of modern republicanism is, is what you might describe as communal freedom. It's a society where communities have a lot of, of room to shape individuals within them. Um, and somehow that has to be balanced against the danger of those kinds of communities becoming, uh, becoming tyrannical, becoming a, a, a tyranny of the majority. I think that that's a lot of what the American Constitution actually does. If you think about the Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights on the one hand describes some individual freedoms. There, everybody has a right to free speech and, and the practice of religion. Um, but actually, if you step back from the First Amendment, the First Amendment is all about communal freedom. It's about allowing the institutions of society that are necessary for the formation of moral individuals to be under the control of different communities. So the freedom of religion is not actually a freedom you can exercise individually, let alone uh, the, the, the freedom of association, what we think of as the, as, as the, the, the sort of political rights described in the First Amendment. A lot of those are actually about creating space for communities to be able to function within a broader society um, and to balance their power over individuals with the desire to protect the freedom of individuals. So that's a long way of saying I don't have a perfect definition of republicanism, but I would say that in a sense, in, in our modern situation, republicanism is a way of enabling communities to form virtuous individuals as they understand it, while also recognizing the rights of those individuals as individuals. And that's why I think liberalism and republicanism have to hang together. And nowhere is that better recognized than in the American system. It's really a distinctly American um, combination. So, I mean, obviously, this is deeply tied up with concepts of federalism and subsidiarity, right? Um, but um, you know, it kind of reminds me of the when the movie Braveheart came out, there were a whole bunch of conservatives who got really into it, guilty, me included, 
And a lot of liberals thought it was bizarre and weird and all that kind of thing. And, and then I remember, you know, writing about it and talking about it with college kids at the time that, you know, the, the community standards and norms of feudal Scotland were not liberal. But when Mel Gibson screams about freedom, everyone understood what he's talking about because it was the freedom for these communities to live the way they wanted to live. And this is like my consistent argument with a lot of, not all, but a lot of libertarians, which is that, you know, I think it was Jonathan Adler, the most sensible libertarian in Christendom, um, uh, that part of the right to be a, you know, part of, by any definition of true freedom, people should have the freedom to live conservatively if they want to. And you can't live conservatively without a community, right? As we understand it. And that means that there have to be rules of a community. And so long as you have the right to exit, which I do think is a fundamental on the liberal side, not Republican, but liberal side, but it's impossible to have a, a decent democracy if people aren't allowed to leave communities that they don't believe are serving them well. Um, um, or institutions with, you know, some exceptions like prison and the army. Um, uh, but it says the real, I want to get back to the Fukuyama point because it's funny. And I did, I do hazily remember bringing this up with him. Um, when I wasn't distracted by the half naked Indian, I was uh, hallucinating in the corner, um, that, uh, there's a kind of, um, Goldilocks kind of argumentation to the Fukuyama book, which is like, he concedes that everybody is right in principle and to a point, but they took their principles too far. And it seems to me that the, this, I mean, I can see where you're coming from with this argument about Republicanism, because the whole point of Republicanism and about forming a certain kind of character that fits a community is understanding where those principles go too far and saying, whoa, 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 calm down. You've gone far enough, rein it in. You know, this is a society kind of thing. And I, I sort of half jokingly accused Fukuyama of being a Straussian, which I got a nice eye roll out of him for it. And, uh, uh yeah, I bet he didn't take it as a joke. Yeah. And, um, uh, <laughs> uh, but the funny thing about it is at the end of the day, his, the whole point of the book is like all of his, I just say the whole point of his book, but all of his, you know, the Freedmanites were right, but they went too far. The Rawlsians are right, but they went too far. The Borks were right, but they went too far. At the end of the day, it is sort of implicit in all of that is that you need a statesman who says, these are our principles, but we don't take them into extreme because all poisons are determined by the dose kind of thing. And, and so yeah, I mean, I think in a way what that argument is lacking is a, is an opposite pole, right? If you're going too far, what are you going toward? And what's the argument for balance other than that you need a disposition toward moderation, which I just think is not a practical solution. Um, there, you know, there, there's, a, there, there's a critique of, of the way that a certain kind of British Burkeanism thinks about European extremism which says that they think the solution to Europe's problems is the English personality. Um, <laughs> if you were just more calm and reasonable, then you wouldn't behave like this. And th the, that's not actually a solution. Um, and in, in a sense, you have to offer a way to think practically about how to counterbalance excesses. 
And so I think that seeing that, in a sense, we're looking for a balance between freedom for individuals, yes, but also freedom for communities, which is necessary because individuals are not adequate, because individuals don't start ready to be trusted with freedom. Um, I think that's a little bit of a fuller picture about what it takes for a society to remain in balance, so that when we go too far in the direction that isn't individualism, because you can define it, you can see where we go too far in individualism, everybody's lonely and, uh, and isolated and alienated. What is the other direction? What is it that liberalism exists to keep us from going too far toward? And I think the answer to that looks like a kind of republicanism, where there is the, the, there are certain kinds of communal uh, definitions of virtue that are uh, n- not just available to people, but in, in, in some respects forced on people. Uh, you know, not everything in life is a choice. And it is possible to go too far in the direction of a society that says this is the only way to live. Um, you know, some of my friends on the right at this point think that, um, that it isn't possible to have virtue unless you have that kind of, of universally shared set of moral ideals in a society. Otherwise, it's not a society. I think that's just not true. And that, in a sense, all of, of the modern era is proof that it's possible to do this. But it's not a simple matter. And it means that our politics is always tense. It's always suspended between these two poles. We're always going too far in one or the other direction, sometimes even both at the same time. And we always have to somehow sustain this balance, uh, in a sense, between the demands of the community and the, the dignity and freedom of the individual. And our politics exists to allow us to have arguments that are basically about pulling in one direction or the other so that we stay, uh, so that we stay in balance. At the very end of the Reflections on the Revolution in France, Edmund Burke ends with this image of himself running from one end of a ship to it, to the other. As it tips too far in one direction, he runs to the opposite side. And I think that's not a bad way to think about what it takes to sustain a free society sometimes. But to do that, you have to have some sense of what the two sides are. And so I think a picture of liberalism that isn't somehow balanced by a kind of republicanism. And it it almost takes a conservative worldview to see that because you have to see that people don't start out ready to be free liberal citizens. We start out as barbarians and we have to be formed by some set of institutions. And those institutions are not optional and they're not something we would choose for ourselves. They're not something children decide on they're imposed. They're imposed by family. They're imposed by community. They're imposed by society. They're necessary, but it is important that they be understood as necessary for freedom, not just necessary on their own. Yes. Obviously, I'm very sympathetic to all this, and I'm not sure you would disagree, but it seems to me the problem with this formulation is that if we are talking about the national community, um, meaning the whole of the nation state, then what you call republicanism is very difficult to distinguish from what others call nationalism, right? It's very difficult to, in fact, distinguish between what you call republicanism and what um, progressives of various stripes call one nation politics or whatever. Um, and the only way I can get on board for this kind of agenda is that 
is for the the subsidiarity argument to be a major right. part of it. But right? I, I, mean, I think that's absolutely the core of the argument. So uh, it, it, the communal freedom assumes that there are different communities. That is that that communities just as individuals are not compelled to all point in the same direction and offer the same answer to every question. In a sense, communal freedom is another way of saying subsidiarity or or federalism. It's not that the nation is one community. I think this is really essential to the basic, to the implicit picture of politics that, that Madisonian constitutionalism describes. Madison assumes an incredible amount of diversity that he describes as factionalism. It's not just a bunch of individuals. It's actually a bunch of groups of individuals. And our society is so big that it's going to consist of a bunch of groups. And the, 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 the question is, what does it mean to be a bunch of groups? What's important about the group? Shouldn't we b- break up the groups and just have individual freedom? Um, and I, I think part of the reason why that can't happen is that individuals have to be formed in communities. I don't think of the nation as one big, uh, as, as one big community in that sense. I think national affiliation, national feeling, patriotism, nationalism is really ultimately only achievable in a free society by being built up from the bottom, by being built up through communal affiliation, through a sense that what holds us together as a nation begins in what holds my community together. And that part of what we're grateful to the nation for is not only the freedom that it offers us as individuals, but the room that it gives us as communities to to build our lives as we understand to be required by by God, by truth, by our sense of right. Um, and that suggests that there has to be some degree of subsidiarity in order for there to be national feeling, let alone for there to be a free society. So I absolutely am not on board with national community. I think that's a that's a category mistake. Um, yeah, and and uh, this is this is like it's a point of great frustration of mine in that the so many progressives talk about how they don't like nationalism when in fact they don't like the word nationalism. They actually like nationalism. FDR was a nationalist. The whole idea. I mean, Bill Chamber made this point a long time ago. You know, the whole idea of the New Deal was to turn the whole of the nation into a community. This is this is a big part of um, Robert Nisbet's critique of, of progressivism is that it tried to create a one-size-fits-all conception of the whole of the nation being a community. And whenever you hear Democratic presidents talk, they talk about it being, you know, you made this point really well about Obama's second inaugural, where, you know, the only two institutions in America are the individual and the government in Washington. And and we all belong to the community under that umbrella, which is just a crazy way to think about things. And um, what I don't understand about the more sensible self-declared nationalists and post-liberal integralist types on the right is that they should understand, first of all, most of the Catholic ones should understand the concept of subsidiarity, right? They should certainly understand it at least as well as you and I do. Um, and but more broadly, like, you know, I'm willing to, as you say, I'm willing for subnational institutions to have all sorts of illiberal commitments, right? And, um, you know, the kibbutz 
It had the right to exit, so it's okay with me, right? But the kibbutz was not a liberal institution, you know? Um, and uh, hippie communes are not liberal institutions. Um, and uh, they're sort of Republican in the way that you say. Why the sort of the post-liberal integralist types don't try a takeover of some town in Wyoming or the state of Rhode Island? Right where they might actually be able to muster the numbers to actually create this kind of community, because you know, I mean, I, we both have our problems with Rousseau, but Rousseau, for all his talk about the general will and all of that stuff, which you know Nisbet said was the among the arguably the most totalitarian conceptions of politics in the history of the West, um, even he was like, it couldn't work on something larger than Geneva, right? And um, the inability of people who want to impose their way of seeing the world on everybody around them to have some humility and about picking a community smaller than a nation of 320 or 333 million people is 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 astounding to me and it, it makes me suspect that their motives are different than simply finding the good life well, I mean, I think there's a variety of motives there. I mean, I would say that there's a way to think about nationalism in opposition to localism, which is how progressives tend to think about it. And when they adopted the term nationalism before it got a bad name, that's what they meant. They, I mean, if you look at, at Teddy Roosevelt's new nationalism, that's, that's as opposed to federalism and localism. Um, there's a way to think of nationalism as opposed to internationalism, which I think is largely what Yoram Huzoni means by by nationalism, for example, um, and and which makes sense. I mean, I think internationalism is is not viable and doesn't doesn't work in theory or in practice. Um, but then there are there are more complicated meanings of the term. I think there's a way to think about nationalism as a kind of repository of national character. Um, which has a lot going for it. I mean, I, th I do think there is, and you make this point too, that there is such a thing as a national character. Um, and it is important to defend it, um, to stand up for it in a sense. And there's a certain kind of populism that does that. Um, th there's also a kind of nationalism that just says, uh, love your country, right? I mean, I think this is, this is Rich Lowry's basically, his meaning of nationalism is a kind of patriotism. Um, these things do have to be distinguished from each other somehow. And I, I think there are some people in the, in the world of, of folks who call themselves nationalists on the right who, who see that pretty clearly. I mean, Patrick Deneen, for example, is very careful to distinguish what he means by nationalism from, uh, fr from a kind of anti-localism and makes exactly the case that you make, um, you know the, the 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 case that ultimately this is about allowing local differences to persist rather than thinking that uh, they have to be eradicated. But uh, implicit in some of what goes by the name of nationalism on the right now is also a, a, a kind of progressive nationalism that just says the progressives might have had the wrong moral philosophy, but they didn't have the wrong political philosophy. Um, and I just think they did. I mean, I don't think it's possible for a large, free, modern society like ours to operate in that way, um, to operate as one large, you know, Greek polis. Um, that's just not the kind of, of society we are, and it's not the kind of politics we have. 
And what we have is better than that, not worse than that, so that, so that we should see what its, what its strengths are. Yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I know I'm a broken record on this, but Hayek didn't think the knowledge problem was a problem just for progressives and socialists, right? You know, I mean, it's like, it's a problem for experts, qua experts, regardless of what their ideological or moral vision is. I, so just changing gears slightly, I wrote a fairly dyspeptic, dismaying uh, G-file yesterday about, um, I, I, I'm almost exhausted just even bringing it up, because um, I, I hate, I, I've been complaining for a long time um, about the obsession some of our colleagues on the right have with hypocrisy. Um, and before that I used to write quite a bit in defense of hypocrisy in the sense that, um, the sort of the, 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 the progressive obsession with hypocrisy, um, really is a form of Rousseauianism or, or having just read the Fukuyama book, sort of disordered Rawlsianism run amok. The idea that like, you know, for example, parents should be bad parents to avoid being hypocrites um, is insane to me, right? And the idea, you know, as, as Ramesh, I think, put it years ago, no one, um, no one denounced Hugh Hefner for not living down to his principles when he moved out of the Playboy Mansion to raise his kids, right? I mean, like, we live in a society, and um, even if you're a glutton, that doesn't mean you should tell everybody gluttony is great just to avoid being a hypocrite, right? So I have complicated, long thought out views about hypocrisy and all that kind of stuff. But what is making me yell at the TV is people's hypocrisy about the use of hypocrisy. And by what I, what I mean is, um, you now have Josh Hawley, you have Ted Cruz, you have a gazillion pundits, all of a sudden on very, very high horses, talking about with jetpacks, high horses with jetpacks, talking about how Democrats don't believe in norms, they condone lawlessness, and uh, they reject the rule of law, and they're inviting violence, and it's outrageous. And when I hear it, and so the, this is my problem essentially with our politics going back the last seven years, which is that everybody, nobody wants to actually internalize and live by their principles. They just want to weaponize their principles to attack other people. So Mike Pence is saddened and disappointed when he was vice president. He would always say he was saddened and disappointed that Nancy Pelosi did something terrible. But then when asked, well, what about what Trump did? He would say, well, Trump's a disruptor and it's okay. And um, I don't know how to get out of this. I, it is this, 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 the weaponization of norms rather than actually living by them. It sort of gets to what you were talking about before, but it's, it's, is there a way out of it? I mean, I think at some level, in its own terms, there's probably not a way out of it. That is, w we should take seriously the criticisms that people offer of other people um, without taking too seriously the notion that these only apply to those other people. You can still learn from that criticism, even though people are hypocritical. And the fact of hypocrisy is not, it, it, it doesn't prove very much, right? It, the The Moral standards are necessary, not because some people live by them perfectly and others don't, but because we should do better at living by them. Um, they're a kind of standard that ought to be held up to allow everybody to improve themselves. 
I think the problem, in a sense, is that our politics now consists just of people talking about the other party. And that means that all there is is this kind of hypocrisy. In a politics where people are talking about how to solve public problems and disagreeing about it, there are other things to look at. And you can think about where you agree and disagree. And, you know, it, it, it bothers you less that everybody involved is being a moral hypocrite, which is always true. Um, and in a sense, the critiques we make of the other party, especially when they are basically moral critiques, are going to be hypocritical. Um, they're never a critique made by a perfect person because there are no such people. And so it's always, you're always going to be able to say, well, you do that too. And that, that doesn't actually prove as much as we might think it does. But I think some of, the, some of the reasons why this is so frustrating right now is that it's all that's going on in the public arena. Each party thinks that the only problem the country has is the other party, but that it's such a big problem that the country is about to die. Um, that's not really a, a durable, sustainable, even tolerable way of, of doing politics. And so uh, it, it seems to me that part of the way out of this is to try to offer some, some way forward on some set of public problems, say, if you run for Congress, maybe you should have some thoughts about what the laws should be um, and, and how national problems might be addressed by public policy, which could be and how. That's traditionally one important thing that politics does. In this moment, we do very, very little of that. There's very little politics of public policy. Now, look, it can easily be taken to excess, and there are times when our politics is much too technocratic, uh, and we behave as though it's all an engineering problem and so on. But I think we've gone so far in the opposite direction now that the only thing anybody has to say is that the other party is a menace and a threat to the future of the country. And that's not a politics that's going to do anything but frustrate us and drive us crazy. And I mean, I, I agree with all that. And, and it just, you know, like the old, you know, the apocryphal stories about the, you know, the, there's the, all those apocryphal stories that are sort of modern updates on the emperor has no clothes where people can't figure out how to get the truck out of the tunnel. And then some kid says, let the air out of the tires and blah, blah, blah. If all of the things that one side says are true about the other side being evil and terrible and horrible, if you want to just stipulate all of them, that is the greatest argument possible for the kind of republicanism that you're talking about. Because it, it cabins off and contains and compartmentalizes the potential damage that these people can do. And, um, and, uh, and this was like, it was fascinating sort of die marker test during the pandemic, the number of people who um, hate, how it illuminated how some people hated federalism. Um, because they kind of would rather the federal government have a one-size-fits-all approach, even if it was wrong, <laughs> rather than have 50 different groups that, you know, have uh, different subunits that go their own way and maybe discover a best practice. And um, anyway, I just, it seems to me that, like, this sort of gets to another one of your, our themes about this problem with our politics these days, is that each party when they get power governs as if they have five minutes to do everything they've ever dreamed of doing 
before the other side gets power. And because they govern that way, they guarantee the other side will get power. So it becomes self-fulfilling. So I'm amazed in the context of all of this Roe stuff, how many Democrats are talking about getting rid of the filibuster so that they can codify Roe and maximalist abortion rights uh, before they lose power as if giving up the filibuster right before you lose power yeah, right. isn't the dumbest thing then? imaginable, right? I mean, for the Democrats now to argue that the filibuster should go away is very bizarre. I mean, I think we are, I think we're very likely at the beginning of a kind of middle length period in which Republicans will dominate the Senate. If you just think about the the, the races that are up in the next few cycles, and the particular kinds of structural advantages that Republicans have, modest but durable advantages, Republicans are probably going to have Senate majorities for most of the rest of this decade. Not huge ones, not 60 votes, but, but majorities. And so if you're a Democrat, you should, you should learn to love the filibuster at this point because it's going to serve you uh, and be very important for you very soon. But they can't quite get their head around the, 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 what it would mean to say right now that they don't want the, the advantage that it might give them in this instant. And I do think a lot of that kind of short-termism is a function of a politics where uh, there's no majority party. And so the two minority parties basically have each come to believe that the purpose of governing is to expend political capital quickly before you lose it. Traditionally, actually, what the, the relationship between governing and political capital is the other way around. When you have political power, you build political capital so that you can broaden your coalition. You use your power to appeal to new voters, which then gives you more power and more voters. But we've come to a place now where we think that being in power means you spend all your political capital immediately. Um, it's not a very effective way to get anything done. Uh, and it's also not an effective way to get out of this cycle where neither party has a durable majority. And so it contributes to the set of incentives that has kept us stuck in this place where, you know, we've come to think that that polarization and parity are the same thing. That what it means to live in a polarized society is we live in a 50-50 society. There's actually no reason for that to be the case. There, there, We've had very polarized periods where there's been a durable majority party and a durable minority, and they hate each other, they're polarized, there are not a lot of people in the middle, but it's not 50-50. The 50-50 the, 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 the problem is a function of this kind of cycle of incentives, and I do think there are ways out of it if the parties are willing to think a little differently about what it means to build a coalition, but they face really powerful incentives not to see that. Um, you know, we don't usually have you on for rank punditry, but... Um... What do you think? I mean, I, my, my own view is that in the near term, there's going to be a lot of chaos and miscalculation and swerving um, by both Republicans and Democrats. In the, if, if Roe is, in fact, overturned, which we don't know, it's still a big if, but it's reasonable at this stage to game it out. Um, but over the long term, I think that this will be good for depolarizing society um, because finally a lot of elected officials will have um, skin in the game about they can't just take a position for free. They have responsibility for their position, which I think is a good thing for a democracy and a republic. Um, but where do you see if, if they do, in fact, repeal Roe? Um, 
or overturn Roe. Um, what do you think the politics of the next two to five years look like? And also, do you agree that if if they end up coming up with some sort of stitch in time, let's say it's nine kind of move, um, you know, sort of Obamacare redux with Robert saying right. abortion Save is a tax, is a tax. Now it's not a tax. Yeah. Um, uh, do you think the conservative legal movement just implodes? I mean, what, what do you think the consequences of that would be? Well, so on the on the first question, I think that um, I think that some of our assumptions about what would happen if Roe were overturned um, are assumptions that were developed in the 1990s and haven't been updated. That is, if Roe had been overturned in Casey, which it should have been, mm-hmm. which um, it kind of was, except in every way yeah, that matters, I mean, you know, <laughs> right? As a practical matter, it, they kept it. Um, and I, I think if it had happened, then it would have been explosive in a much more dramatic fashion than what we're going to see. Abortion was a much more divisive issue and a more, and a sort of bigger issue on people's minds, um, in, in 1992 than it is now for a few reasons. I mean, I, I think for one thing, there's just a lot less abortion now in America than there was in the 1990s. I mean, to a degree that people don't really think about, but much, much less of it. Um, secondly, the country is much more sorted now than it was then, so that there are not a lot of people who live in states that are likely to strictly restrict abortion who don't think that should happen. There are not a lot of states where there's enough of a Republican majority in the legislature to do it, but there aren't, uh, but there isn't support for it among the public. Uh, there are a few states like that. They're mostly in the Midwest, but not a lot. Uh, and, and there certainly would have been a lot in the 90s. And so, it, it, and I think the social issues have changed. What we mean now by the social issues isn't really fundamentally abortion. Um, and so the parties are divided in a different way. And so on the whole, I think that, that um, overturning Roe will be much less explosive than it would have been. And then maybe a lot of people assume it will be. Um, I think the energy around it dissipates fairly quickly. And then we're in a situation where there's a question of what are the state legislatures going to do? And as you say, that's kind of a healthy question. That's how things like this should be resolved. And I do think a lot of politicians who've had it easy, who've been able to say, well, I, I, you know, I want to go all the way, will find that A, that's maybe not what they actually think. And B, they can't really get away with it, even in their Republican state um, or Democratic state. And ultimately, over time, I think we probably do gravitate toward a kind of Western Europe-style approach where um, there are a lot of restrictions on abortion in the third trimester. There are some in the second. There are not a lot in the first. Um, in, in an, I, you know, ironically, this is kind of the framework that Roe tried to create, except that this is by definition a legislative framework. It's arbitrary. Um, and legislation is arbitrary. The, the, the courts can't do that. It's illegitimate. And um, I think we're, we, we, in some places we'll end up closer to that than we would have otherwise. Um, and I don't think that this becomes a huge explosive issue for, for the long term. Um, look, if they somehow don't overturn Roe now, um, yeah, I think, there'd be, I think there'd be a lot of trouble for the conservative legal movement because in a sense... The point of it has been to create the circumstances for there to be a, a Supreme Court majority that understands the Constitution in this way. Um, 
Roe is indefensible. Roe and Casey cannot be defended by any legitimate mode of constitutional interpretation. They just can't be. I mean, this isn't one of those issues where I would say, well, there's just a legitimate disagreement here. And, and I don't even mean about abortion. Um, right. I, I'm certainly There's a legitimate disagreement about abortion but, policy. Yeah. But Roe is not right. that. I can see that. Yeah. I'm on one side of it, but it's a legitimate disagreement. The, 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 there's not a legitimate disagreement about whether the Constitution protects abortion in the way that Roe and Casey suggest. It doesn't. And there's just not a way, I think, to defend that except by completely giving up any pretense of a principled jurisprudence. And if that's what a, you know, a 6-3 Republican-appointed court does, then I think the, the conservative legal movement would have a lot of soul-searching to do, and that that wouldn't happen in a clean way, but would be a, a, a breakdown, and understandably. Yeah, I mean, it's funny watching this debate that we just had the vote that failed, where the Democrats wanted to, quote-unquote, codify Roe. And Joe Manchin came out and said that he's in favor of codifying Roe, but this isn't this, because this actually sweeps away all sorts of regional regulations on abortion. And he kind of has it wrong in the sense that, I mean, this is, this is what has been so poisonous, I think, to the debate, is that Roe and Doe and codified by Casey and all that kind of stuff is extreme, right? It is, it is and, and the, the media and the pro-abortion rights crowd had a fairly successful campaign to make it sound like Roe was the moderate middle ground position. And they were aided by the fact that no one wants to talk about abortion. So like when you say, when you ask a lot of people, should we overturn Roe? What they really hear is, do you want to have huge arguments about abortion with people at around your dinner table? And of course people are going to say, no, that's not, you know, and, and so when Manchin says this, this, that the democratic legislation was more extreme than Roe, he's playing on that misperception of Roe. But, and the reality is, is that if, if you get rid of Roe, I think you're right. I've been making the same point for a while. You get, eventually you find equilibrium somewhere close to the European model, right? I mean, it depends which European country you're talking about, but, um, the reason why I think there's going to be chaos in the next few years is everybody, for the reasons we were talking about earlier, everybody overinterprets their victories. And so I know I don't think McConnell wants a national ban on abortion, but the fact that he wouldn't say no to something like that is an indication of where the animal spirits are. Louisiana, you know, is working on legislation to call all abortions homicides. Um, and again, I'm, I'm operationally pro-life, you know, as well, but like, um, um, that kind of stuff you could see being a great aid and comfort to Democrats. Meanwhile, Democrats without the fiction of Roe are going to keep trying to reestablish Roe, which in effect allows partial birth abortion until, you know, uh, seconds before delivery, which could be an over. So I, that's what I mean by. Both sides will overreact because they're going to be listening to their bases. 23% of Americans think abortion should be legal in all circumstances, no matter what. And 21% of Americans think abortion should not be legal in any circumstances, no matter what. And if both parties, for the time being, are receptive to those constituencies, there's going to have to be overreaction and overinterpretation of victory for a little while until the responsibility of actually having a position catches up with a lot of the politicians. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And and it's, you know, our, our colleague at AI, uh, Carlin Bowman, put out a few months ago an amazing compendium of public opinion on abortion, 50 years of surveys. And what what you walk away with from that is that there's actually been very stable public opinion. Um, the, the basic views have not changed. There are other things you walk away with. There's no difference between men and women in their views of abortion. That's just not one of the categories that are useful in defining public views on this. Men and women think about the same about it. But the basic sense that there need to be limits, especially late in pregnancy, but that you know most Americans think that some abortions should be legal, um, is a complicated place for our politics to end up. I mean, I, I think that it's not where any of the people who are really activists on abortion are. Um, it's not where pro-lifers are. It's not where the, the real pro-abortion activists are. And those are the people who have the most influence on the party because they're the ones who care enough about abortion to make it a priority for them. Um, they show up at so, the meetings, right? I yeah, mean, yeah, they're there. And, and so, look, I, I think that there'll be some educational work for pro-lifers like me to engage in to help people see that, that more Americans should see that abortion is wrong. Um, and also that uh, overturning Roe doesn't mean that there's some immediate transformation, but means that now we have to have this argument and think about what we want and what other kinds of laws there ought to be out there and what other ways there are to support women and children. Um, I think all of those things can be constructive. But obviously, politics doesn't just happen in that nice way of let's have a conversation. Politics, you know, when a question like this opens up, it is going to be chaotic. It's going to be bitter. Um, and over time, we may be able to look back on it and say things settled in a place that was close to where the public wanted to be, but the settling is more like pushing and pulling, and that's what the next few years are likely to feel like. So I, mean, I'll, I just want to close on this because I'm actually legitimately curious about this because I've been asked about this. Now that I'm a CNN guy, I, get, I talk to a lot more liberals than I used to, and um, several of them asked me in good faith in the green room or elsewhere, um, whether there is, I mean, obviously they're very skeptical, whether there's any reason to actually credit the claims from Republicans that in a pro-life America, we'll do more to support pregnant women, kids, more to alleviate the costs of, um, of parenthood, often single parenthood, yada, yada, yada. And, and my initial, my, my, the best answer I could come up with is I think that there's some people who are sincere about it. And there's also this, just this, this other track about child tax credits and, and guaranteed income and these debates that you get, including amongst various of our scholars about, you know, family support in various ways. But the, that track hasn't really been linked to this argument about, um, about, about, you know, limiting abortion. Um, am I wrong about that? Are, has that link been made more and I just missed it? Or, and do you think eventually the sort of family assistance type stuff that the Romneys and others have been talking about is going to get plugged into this? I mean, in other words, will a, will the overturning of Roe actually lead to more conservative welfare statism of one kind or another? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that um, there's a strong argument for providing more support for, for pregnant women and children, regardless of abortion, and that that's, that's, a, that's a case that needs to be heard more on the right. 
it's been part of the kind of Reformicon case from from the start. And it's not really a coincidence that all the people who make that argument are also pro-life. So I don't think it's a coincidence. Um, but I wouldn't say that it's obvious that that argument is going to be part of the case that the right now makes um, in the States or in Washington when we think about abortion. I think it should be. I wrote a piece about this for, for First Things last year. On uh, They had this sort of symposium on post-Roe America. And it, it does seem to me that arguments for more restrictions on the practice of abortion would be stronger and more effective in the States if they were connected to policy ideas about how to help pregnant women and children, just as a practical matter, um, as a political matter, maybe. And so I think that makes sense. But, you know, in a sense, your question is, should we expect the Republican Party to do what makes sense? And <laughs> I, uh, you know, I have my doubts. All right, my friend. Um, thank you so much for doing this. I know you did it at short notice, and we're looking forward to having you on the 24th. Um, and uh for the remnant palooza and uh it's always great chatting and obviously we'll have you back thanks very much Joan. i appreciate it okay so dr levin has left the building or the studio or the virtual space digital realm astral whatever blah 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 um always fun to talk to you all i think it's always fun to talk to you all um it is such pure wonky goodness it's not even really wonky i mean he can do wonkiness at the yin yang but it's sort of this sort of sort of almost statesmanship and i i just i love listening to the guy um and uh i hope you guys do too but even if you don't i'm gonna keep having him on um i think you do at least the feedback is almost always good and um vis-a-vis uh, -vis the remnant palooza um obviously this is you know again space is limited we've already gotten a bunch of people to sign up but um and this is this is a perk for being a subscriber to the dispatch and um there will be many more such uh perks down the road for subscribers to the dispatch um members of the dispatch community um as as, as american express used to say membership has its privileges so um we are not putting the link to the 500th episode of the remnant in the show notes, we. Uh, but if you are a subscriber, you can find it at the bottom of the Wednesday G file that I referenced earlier. And um, I don't think there's a lot more time to get a seat, uh, given how many people sign up. But as of this recording, there is. And if you can't make it, that's great. Again, don't. No planes, trains, and automobiles to get there. Um, basically, we just want people who are motivated to be there um who like the show and will provide a good ambient laugh track and maybe want to grab um a drink after so um uh there'll be more about that as time goes on and of course you'll still be able to listen to it when it airs as the 500th episode of the remnant so with that um i got a bunch of things i gotta do and um thanks for listening and i'll see you next time no you won't this is a podcast